Chapter 8, Part 1 of St. George and St. Michael, Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jordan. St. George and St. Michael, Volume 1, by George MacDonald. Chapter 8, An Adventure, Part 1. When he reached the spot at which he usually turned off, by a gap in the hedge to needle his way through the unpathed wood, he yielded to the impulses of memory and habit, and sought the U-circle, where for some moments he stood by the dumb, disfeatured stone, which seemed to slumber in the moonlight, a monument slowly vanishing from above a vanished grave. Indeed, it might well have been the grave of buried time, for what fitter monument could he have than a mutilated sundial? What better enclosure than such a hedge of yews, and more suitable light than that of the dying moon? Or was it but that the heart of the youth, receiving these things as into a concave mirror, reprojected them into space, all shadowy with its own ghostliness and gloom? Close by the dial, like the dark way into regions where time is not, yawned the mouth of the pleached alley. Beyond that was her window, on which the moon must now be shining. He entered the alley, and walked softly towards the house. Suddenly, down the dark tunnel, came rushing upon him Dorothy's mastiff, with a noise as of twenty soft feet, and a growl as if his throat had been full of teeth, changing to a boisterous welcome when he discovered who the stranger was. Fearful of disturbing the household, Richard soon quieted the dog, which was in the habit of obeying him almost as readily as his mistress, and, fearful of disturbing sleepers or watchers, approached the house like a thief. To gain a sight of Dorothy's window, he had to pass that of the parlour and then the porch, which he did on the grass, that his steps might be noiseless, but here the dog started from his heel and bounded into the porch, leading after him the eyes of Richard, who thereupon saw what would have else remained undiscovered, two figures, namely, standing in its deep shadow. Judging it his part, as a friend of the family, to see who, at so late an hour, and so near the house, seemed thus to avoid discovery, Richard drew nearer, and the next moment saw that the door was open behind them, and that they were Dorothy and a young man. "'The gates will be shut,' said Dorothy. "'It is no matter. Old Eccles will open to me at any hour,' was the answer. "'Still, it were well you went without delay,' said Dorothy, and her voice trembled a little, for she had caught sight of Richard. "'Now, not only are anger and stupidity near of kin, but when a man whose mental movements are naturally deliberate is suddenly spurred, he is in great danger of acting like a fool, and Richard did act like a fool. He strode up to the entrance of the porch, and said, "'Do you not hear the lady, sir? She tells you to go.' A voice as cool and self-possessed as the other was hasty and perturbed, replied, "'I am much in the wrong, sir, if the lady do not turn the command upon yourself. Until you have obeyed it, she may perhaps see reason for withdrawing it in respect of me.' Richard stepped into the porch, but Dorothy glided between them and gently pushed him out. "'Richard Haywood,' she said. "'Whew!' 
interjected the stranger softly. "'You can claim no right,' she went on, "'to be here at this hour. Pray go. You will disturb my mother.' "'Who is this man, then, whose right seems acknowledged?' asked Richard, in ill-suppressed fury. "'When you address me like a gentleman, such as I used to believe you, "'may I presume to ask when you ceased to regard me as a gentleman, Mistress Dorothy?' "'As soon as I found that you had learned to despise law and religion,' answered the girl, "'such a one will hardly succeed in acting the part of a gentleman, "'even had he the blood of the Somersets in his veins.' "'I thank you, Mistress Dorothy,' said the stranger, "'and will profit by the plain hint. "'Once more tell me to go, and I will obey.' "'He must go first, returned Dorothy. "'Richard had been standing as if stunned.' but now, with an effort, recovered himself. "'I will wait for you,' he said, and turned away. "'For whom, sir?' asked Dorothy, indignantly. "'You have refused me the gentleman's name,' answered Richard. "'Perhaps I may have the good fortune to persuade himself to be more obliging.' "'I shall not keep you waiting long,' said the young man, significantly, as Richard walked away. "'To do Richard justice, and greatly he needs it, I must make the remark that such had been the intimacy betwixt him and Dorothy, that he might well imagine himself acquainted with all the friends of her house. But the intimacy had been confined to the children. The heads of the two houses, although good neighbours, had not been drawn towards each other, and their mutual respect had not ripened into friendship. Hence many of the family and social relations of each were unknown to the other. And indeed, both families led such a retired life that the children knew little of their own relatives even, and seldom spoke of any. Lady Scudamore, the mother of the stranger, was first cousin to Lady Vaughan. They had been very intimate as girls, but had not met for years. Hardly since the former married Sir John, the son of one of King James's carpet knights. Hearing of her cousin's illness, she had come to visit her at last, under the escort of her son. Taken with his new cousin, the youth had lingered, and lingered, and in fact, Dorothy had been unable to get rid of him before an hour strange for leave-taking in such a quiet and yet hospitable neighbourhood. Richard took his stand on the side of the public road, opposite the gate, but just ere Scudamore came, which was hardly a minute after, a cloud crept over the moon, and as he happened to stand in a line with the bole of a tree, Scudamore did not catch sight of him. When he turned to walk along the road, Richard thought he avoided him, and, making a great stride or two after him, called aloud, "'Stop, sir, stop! You forget your appointments over easily, I think.' "'Oh, you are there,' said the youth, turning." "'I am glad you acknowledge my presence,' said Richard, "'not the better pleased with his new acquaintance "'that his speech and behaviour had an easy tone of superiority, "'which, if indefinably felt by the home-bred lad, "'was not, therefore, to be willingly accorded. "'His easy carriage, his light step, "'his still shoulders and lithe spine "'indicated both birth and training. "'Just the night for a serenade,' he went on, heedless of Richard's remark. Bright, but not too bright. Cloudy, but not too cloudy. 
Sir, said Richard, amazed at his coolness. Oh, you want to quarrel with me, returned the youth. But it takes two to fight as well as to kiss, and I will not make one to-night. I know who you are well enough, and have no quarrel with you, except, indeed it be true, as indeed it must, for Dorothy tells me so, that you have turned roundhead as well as your father. "'What right have you to speak so familiarly of Mistress Dorothy?' said Richard. "'It occurs to me,' replied Scudamore airily, "'that I had better ask you by what right you haunt her house at midnight. "'But I would not willingly cross you in cold blood. "'I wish you good a night, and better luck next time you go courting.' "'The moon swam from behind a cloud, "'and her over-ripe and fading light seemed, to the eyes of Richard, to gather upon the figure before him, and there revive. The youth had on a doublet of some reddish colour, ill brought out by the moonlight, but its silver lace, and the rapier hilt inlaid with silver, shone the keener against it. A short cloak hung from his left shoulder, trimmed also with silver lace, and a little cataract of silver fringe fell from the edges of his short trousers, into the wide tops of his boots, which were adorned with ruffles. He wore a large collar of lace, and cuffs of the same were folded back from his bare hands. A broad-brimmed beaver hat, its silver band fastened with a jewel, holding a plume of willowy feathers, completed his attire, which he wore with just the slightest of a jaunty air. It was hardly the dress for a walk at midnight, but he had come in his mother's carriage, and had to go home without it. Alas now for Richard's share in the freedom to which he had of late imagined himself devoted. No sooner had the words last spoken entered his ears than he was but a driven slave, ready to rush into any quarrel with the man who spoke them. Ere he had gone three paces, he had stepped in front of him. "'Whatever rights Mistress Dorothy may have given you,' he said, "'she had none to transfer in respect of my father.' "'What do you mean by calling him a roundhead?' "'Why, is he not one?' asked the youth, simply, keeping his ground in spite of the unpleasant proximity of Richard's person. "'I am sorry to have wronged him, but I mistook him for a ringleader of the same name. I heartily beg your pardon.' "'You did not mistake,' said Richard, stupidly. "'Then I did him no wrong,' rejoined the youth, and once more would have gone his way.' But Richard, angrier than ever at finding he had given him such an easy advantage, moved with his movement, and kept rudely in front of him, provoking a quarrel, in clownish fashion, it must be confessed. "'By heaven,' said Scudamore, "'if Dorothy had not begged me not to fight with you,' and as he spoke, he slipped suddenly past his antagonist, and walked swiftly away. Richard plunged after him, and seized him roughly by the shoulder. Instantaneously, he wheeled on the very foot whence he was taking the next stride, and as he turned, his rapier gleamed in the moonlight. The same moment, it left his hand, he scarce knew how, and flew across the hedge. Richard, who was unarmed, had seized the blade, and almost by one and the same movement of his wrist, wrenched the hilt from the grasp of his adversary, and flung the thing from him. Then, closing with the cavalier, 
slighter and less skilled in such encounters, the roundhead almost instantly threw him upon the turf that bordered the road. "'Take that for drawing on an unarmed man,' he said. No reply came. The youth lay stunned. Then compassion woke in the heart of the angry Richard, and he hastened to his help. Ere he reached him, however, he made an attempt to rise, but only to stagger and fall again. "'Curse you for a roundhead!' he cried. "'You've twisted some of my tackle. I can't stand.' "'I'm sorry,' returned Richard. "'But why did you bear Bilbo on a naked man? "'A right malignant you are.' "'Did I?' returned Scudamore. "'You laid hands on me so suddenly. "'I ask your pardon.' Accepting the offered aid of Richard, he rose, but his right knee was so much hurt that he could not walk a step without great pain. Full of regret for the suffering he had caused, Richard lifted him in his arms, and seated him on a low wall of earth, which was all that here enclosed Lady Vaughan's shrubbery. Then, breaking through the hedge on the opposite side of the way, presently returned with the rapier, and handed it to him. Scudamore accepted it courteously, with difficulty replaced it in its sheath, rose, and once more attempted to walk, but gave a groan and would have fallen had not Richard caught him. Ah, "'The devil is in it!' he cried with more annoyance than anger. If I am not in my place at my lord's breakfast to-morrow, there will be questioning. That I had leave to accompany my mother makes the mischief. If I had stole away, it would be another matter. It will be hard to bear rebuke and no frolic. Come home with me, said Richard. My father will do his best to atone for the wrong done by his son. Set foot across the threshold of a roundhead fanatic, in the way of hospitality, not if the choice lay betwixt that and my coffin, cried the cavalier. Then let me carry you back to Lady Vaughan's, said Richard, with a torturing pang of jealousy, which only his sense of right, now thoroughly roused, enabled him to defy. I dare not. I should terrify my mother and perhaps kill my cousin. Your mother, your cousin, cried Richard. "'Yes,' returned Scudamore. "'My mother is there, on a visit to her cousin, Lady Vaughan.' "'Alas, I am more to blame than I knew,' said Richard. "'No,' Scudamore went on, heedless of Richard's lamentation. "'I must crawl back to Raglan as I may. "'If I get there before morning, I shall be able to show reason "'why I should not wait upon my lord at his breakfast. "'You belong to the Earl's household, then?' said Richard. Yes, and I fear I shall be grey-headed before I belong to anything else. He makes much of the ancient customs of the country. I would he would follow them. In the good old times I should have been made a squire at least by now, if, indeed, I had not earned my spurs, but his lordship will never be content without me to hand him his buttered egg at breakfast and fill his cup at dinner with his favourite claret and so I am neither more nor less than a page, which rhymes with my age better than it suits it. But the Earl has a will of his own. He is a master worth serving, though, and there is my Lady Elizabeth and my Lady Mary, not to mention my Lord Herbert. But, he concluded, rubbing his injured knee with both hands, 
Why do I prate of them to a roundhead? Why, indeed, returned Richard, are they not, the earl and all his people, traitors and that of the worst? Are they not the enemies of the truth, worshippers of idols, bowing the knee to a woman, and kissing the very toes of an old man, so in love with ignorance that he tortures the philosopher who tells him the truth about the world and its motions? Go on, Master Roundhead, I can chastise you, and that you know, this cursed knee. I will stand unarmed within your thrust, and never budge a foot, said Richard. But no, he added, I dare not, lest I should further injure one I have wronged already. Let there be a truce between us. I am no papist, returned Scudamore. I speak only as one of the Earl's household, true men all, for them I cast the word in your teeth, you roundhead traitor. For myself, I am of the English church. It is but the wolf and the wolf's cub, said Richard. Prelatical episcopacy is but the old harlot veiled, or rather, forsooth, her bloody scarlet blackened in the sulphur fumes of her coming desolation. Curse on, roundhead, sighed the youth. I must crawl home. Once more he rose and made an effort to walk, but it was of no use. Walk he could not. I must wait till the morning, he said, when some Christian wagoner may be passing. Leave me in peace. Nay, I am no such bore, said Richard. Do you think you could ride? I could try. I will bring you the best mare in Gwent, but tell me your name, that I may know with whom I have the honour of a feud. My name is Roland Scudamore, answered the youth. Yours I know already, and, round-head as you are, you have some smatch of honour in you. With an air of condescension, he held out his hand, which his adversary, oppressed with a sense of the injury he had done him, did not refuse. Richard hurried home, and to the stable, where he saddled his mare. But his father, who was still in his study, heard the sound of her hoofs on the paved yard, and met him, as he led her out on the road, with an inquiry as to his destination at such an hour. Richard told him that he had had a quarrel with a certain young fellow of the name of Scudamore, a page of the Earl of Worcester, whom he had met at Lady Vaughan's, and recounted the result. "'Was your quarrel a just one, my son?' "'No, sir, I was in the wrong.' "'Then you are so far in the right now, and you are going to help him home?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Have you confessed yourself in the wrong?' "'Yes, sir.' Then go, my son, but beware of private quarrel in such a season of strife. This youth and thyself may meet some day in mortal conflict on the battlefield, and for my part, I know not how it may be with another, in such a case I would rather slay my friend than my enemy. Enlightened by the inward experience of the moment, Richard was able to understand and respond to the feeling how different a sudden action flashed off the surface of a man's nature may be from that which, had time been given, would have unfolded itself from its depths. End of chapter 8, part 1